Hello, welcome back to the Morality of Everyday Things. I'm Ant. I'm Jake. We're following on to the last episode. This one is a little different in format. It's more of a general discussion around an essay piece that I will be posting and linking in the description. Title, you know, working on it, but Jake, Leah had an excellent one. It was uh, work, colon, money or meaning. Mm, excellent. Basically, analysis of why it is that we seem to have to make a decision about that. Shouldn't it be the capitalist systems actually mean that by pursuing money, should we not be doing good naturally? That is how the invisible hand is supposed to work. Like the butcher doesn't make me my meat you out, know, of, for, generosity out of generosity of spirit. <laughs> no, exactly. Good. I like that you remember that. And similarly, the baker and uh, whoever else is in my small candlestick imaginary maker. village. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Can't remember um, who else it was. What's going on? Why Why is the invisible hand getting things wrong? What's what going is going on? wrong there? Quickly, thank you very much to everyone who does leave reviews. You. If you're interested in skipping the ads, you can join ACAST Plus. We mentioned that it should be in the pre-roll. And also very welcome to reach out to us through whatever channel makes sense. Um, yeah, we, we love to hear from you guys and we, we really appreciate it. Yeah. keeps us motivated to keep working on yeah, the show. Exactly. Well, apparently we're extrinsically motivated. What losers. It's yeah, it's the autonomy, the mastery, <laughs> but really pay us. <laughs> so last episode, we talked a little bit about why it is what rent seeking is, you know, what work is, what meaning is. And we talked a little bit about Adam Smith's model of the invisible hand. This time, let's take a second and think, Jake, why do we think Adam Smith's model has perhaps failed? Why is it that the invisible hand and the profit incentive is not always generating societal value anymore? I don't know why, but I, whenever I'm thinking about the invisible hand getting things wrong. I just have this image of like a really pale hand, like giving giving the finger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always imagine like, did you ever play Super Smash Bros? Yeah. And you know, there's like the final boss is a hand. Yeah. I always, whenever anyone says the invisible hand, I think about that. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, exactly. Well, I suppose a, a good place to start is just to some extent, and you, you touched on this last time, I think the invisible hand is a little bit misunderstood. Smith, when his sort of writings are, are made clear, he's talking about the fact that it's actually a wonderful alignment of markets that self-interest can fulfill everyone's needs. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. he, he talks about it's not the fact that butchers sort of are just really generous people that they chop up meat and sell it it's like no mm. they need to earn a living and they specialize in a particular trade mm. and that is what leads to societal benefits because obviously people need meat he gets really excited about the division of labor the idea that people can specialize on different things mm -hmm. and that comes together for greater social benefits yeah which but, is really just a kind of micro statement of ricardo's the benefits of trade rule yeah right? does like, ricardo not come after i actually can't remember the time oh does he oh well um, in that case he's just stealing division of labor <laughs> one of them is copying the other okay i can't remember what the, the ordering is plagiarist yeah ricardo's benefits of trade paradigm law whatever is basically that it actually is better for two countries to just focus on the stuff they're good at and mm. trade rather than have to do everything but be bad at some of it yeah so like france should make wine and cheese and britain should make Winning wars. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, what, what's Britain good at? Apparently financial services. Ugh. And you come together and, and that's mutually beneficial. Yes. But um, um, Smith, to answer the question you asked me, I think what's misunderstood about Smith is um, he's not talking about this in a purely free market sense in the way that people came exactly. to Exactly. He's, he's talking, talking about, about good governance He's and talking regulation. about well-governed markets. So a little quote from myself. I quote myself in this, in this a few times. <laughs> Firstly, Adam Smith's examples only seem to work in near quote-unquote perfect competitive markets. And it's becoming abundantly clear that markets that naturally liberate at such a point are the exception, not the rule. There are often structural informational asymmetries, power imbalances, or weak regulatory environments allowing externalities to be forced on society rather than internalized by companies, or which allow non-competitive behaviors. Yeah. I think to line this up with the question that we're asking, and we're talking about work being mm. either based on money or based on meaning. In an ideal view of society, we would love to exist in a world where the work you do and the money you receive is commensurate with the value you provide to society. Yeah. 
So if you work hard and you go above and beyond and you provide stuff that's like really, really useful to people, you'll be paid really well. If you're highly skilled, you're an expert doctor, you know, you'll be really well paid. And if you're not doing stuff that's particularly valuable, you'll be, you know, you're paid in alignment with your contributions. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lovely ideal, right? Yep. Yeah. And instead it's if you work in real estate and have a rich dad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, I suppose the problem is that people look at how society works and then you can kind of game it. And, and, and we talked a lot about hedge funds and investment bankers last time and the idea that you've got these meta service industries that are layered on top of actual fundamentally useful work. So the businesses that stock markets are derived from. Yeah, layered on top of the actual sort of fundamental work that moves society on, the businesses that are actually doing stuff. And to some extent, these guys are just gaming the way that the economy works. You talked about the term extracting rent. Mm. You know, they're not actually doing something that's fundamentally valuable, but they're taking, in a lot of cases, quite large payments mm. uh, for the services that they provide. So talking a little bit about how they managed to do that, I'd singled out a few specific things, which are informational asymmetries, power imbalances, weak regulatory environments, allowing externalities to be participant people. Let's kind of look at some of those in turn. And I think there's, there is also a, an interesting overlap between these factors and also a kind of like power of psychology or power particularly of media and public opinion. So I think it's interesting. A really good example would be someone like the NRA in the USA, right? That's the National Rifle Association, Yes, right? the ability that they have on the one hand to like literally impact legislation, but then on the other hand, to more passively impact people's perspectives mm. and hence lead to more favorable cultural views. Yeah. And that would be an example of entrenching a power imbalance in a soft way. A hard way would be more like the revolving door between Goldman Sachs and the uh, US government. So. Mm. Uh, a ridiculous number of the most recent, um, what's the term for the US head of, the equivalent of the Chancellor's Exchequer? I know you mean Treasury General or something like Maybe that? Director of Treasury. Head, head of the Treasury. Some, uh, yeah. A ridiculous number of them are ex-Goldman Sachs, often go back to Goldman Sachs. I mean, the people who Obama had basically in charge of the financial portion of the executive cabinet were ex-Goldman Sachs guys. Mm -hmm. And the kind of both, you know, direct and, and also indirect, like, you know, less cynical ways that that may, may view their perspective on how financial systems should be governed mm -hmm. and set up, right? And for example, you know, what companies should or shouldn't be allowed to fail. Mm. <laughs> yeah. We can't let Goldman fail. <laughs> yeah. So again, quoting my own essay, singled out the problem of power imbalances, there is a vicious cycle whereby powerful companies use the, that power to further entrench favorable imbalances within our cultural, legal, and even legislative systems. This can be subtle through spreading ideals via owned media outlets, but also much more explicit. This is evident in the influence of the NRA and other lobby groups on US policymakers and the colloquially labeled revolving door phenomenon between powerful firms and government influencing policy. That isn't to say that the influence is direct, i.e. the ex-employees are literally instructed to do things by the company, but it's clear that their experience can bias their perception of fair policy, particularly when roles probably await them back at these firms after their tenure in government. Goldman Sachs has developed a notorious reputation in this regard, give some examples that we've already spoken about, particularly devising the post-08 bailout packages, which effectively mm. decided to bail out the banks rather than individual mortgage holders. This before returning to Goldman Sachs after their stint in government ended. Goldman aside, there are many other examples. So a uh, fairly recent, this is not so recent anymore, but ex-Verizon legal counsel Ajit Pai, who was the main proponent of the immensely unpopular repeal of the net neutrality, net neutrality bill, mm -hmm. i.e. you couldn't, if you bought internet, everyone got the same internet, was roughly that bill, earning him a double episode segment on John Oliver's show. <laughs> wow. Um, must have been really shameful. Yeah. Another one quickly that we we'd mentioned was uh, informational asymmetries or, or human behavior, what we can call it. Following on quote from that uh, essay, the second failing of Adam Smith's model is around his assumptions about human behavior embedded in this model. We're susceptible to biases, we make mistakes, and have limited time available to scour all information available on the market. We can't go to every butcher and check their prices and confirm that they are fair. Mm. As a result, a company can make a profit by quote-unquote tricking people into exchanging their money for a good or service which is of less economic value than the price offered and mostly inflated by rents. 
Mm-hmm. As such, even if there is no structural imbalance in the market, a de facto one can still exist due to human error. A really good example would be the asset managers, right? Maybe it's not widely known enough. Okay, maybe there are emotional biases where it makes you feel safer. Or someone has told you that you should work with those asset managers. Maybe the asset managers are selectively picking data points like their performance in the last year or in a specific year to say, hey, we can overperform. When actually, you know, like we have said, like long-term data suggests that they don't overperform. And this is a little bit, again, relating to this uh, perspective of Adam Smith, which I think is largely incorrect. Also note that Adam Smith, though often seen as a capitalist deity, was considered very liberal and left-wing for this time, Mm -hmm. as his view more widely was one based on compassion. In one of our previous quotes, he said value improves the lives of all people when in a well-governed society. Further reading of Adam Smith shows he had an assumption that, to quickly paraphrase, the decency of humanity and mid-term self-interest in maintaining a functioning society would stop rent seekers from capturing our economic systems. This doesn't seem to have borne out, but we have a chance to change it. And then there's a a link to an interesting video um, where Noam Chomsky talks about about Adam Smith. And I think particularly could be an entire separate episode, but Chomsky's perspective in an interesting book that he co-wrote with someone called Manufacturing Consent Mm. is very interesting. It's basically the idea that we've created a kind of media political system where they kind of feed off each other. And as the name kind of suggests, uh, there's an ability to manufacture consent that mm-hmm. doesn't actually benefit like people being well informed. So I, I think there's a very famous interview that he has with a broadcaster and the broadcaster basically says something to the effect of like, so do you think I, or something to the effect of, oh, do you know, do you not think I'm being fair or biased or something like, are you personally insulting me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, and he, and Chomsky kind of par- to paraphrase again, cause I can't remember the exact quote, says something to the effect of, I'm not saying that you are like actively choosing to lie. I'm saying that if you didn't agree with the system that is being upheld, you wouldn't be in this seat, right? It's just not selecting. Yeah, there's something Something Orwellian and passive about it. And it's it's not even that there's like some cabal of people like at the top cackling. It's a system Mm -hmm. that is just constructed to filter in people who agree with the system, right? Like, because naturally you wouldn't bring in a news anchor who's just going to question everything or <laughs> or bring in uh, unpopular stories and stuff. It's a system that we've created that kind of works that way. That's um, what the lizards want you to think. Anyway. Yeah. So, Jake, why don't we just, say, before, just to sum that bit up before we go to a, to a quick mid-roll break, you're saying then there's, a, there's two failings of Adam Smith's model. And the first is that markets are not perfect in the competitive way that's often defined. And the second is that assumptions about human behavior that he embeds in the model sort of fail. And this to is change kind of Kahneman-esque, right? Well, to, to change that, what I'm saying is the reason it doesn't play out like the invisible hand is mm-hmm. because they don't function like competitive markets. Yep. And the reason for that is one, human biases will lead to some practical informational asymmetries, even if the information is out sure. there. There's just only so much time I have to assess everything, right? Mm-hmm. I can't check every butcher. And then the second part is basically power imbalances, which are then worsened by the fact that there are kind of systems where either passively through public opinion, you know, media, etc., or actively through literally like a revolving door with government, these power imbalances are further entrenched. Cool. Well, let's go to a quick break, but we'll be back to look at how we can fix this. Okay, uh, we're back. How can we fix this? <laughs> <laughs> so I think one thing that's really interesting that has come up as a recurring theme in a lot of our shows or episodes that I don't talk about much in the essay, this is mostly completed, not fully completed. I'll work on that. Mm. Um, Basically, this this idea that we, we've spoken a few times before where we, I, I'm sure we've all like met people in our lives who are like, you ask them some challenging question, and they're like, well, if it's not illegal, why is it wrong? And, and you know, particularly, for example, the billionaire stuff, uh, a lot of things like that, like a lot of people are like, well, there's nothing wrong with it. Or like, is private working schools. At, private schools, is working at Facebook make you a bad thing? But increasingly, I think there is a public opinion that's uh, like arising where you should take an active stance morally in your behavior, right? And we see this particularly with consumption. Are you, are Don't you talking buy just generally about hypocrisy. <laughs> so the idea that people hold principles like, for example, eating meat is bad because it's bad for the environment, bad mm. for animal ethics. But then in practice, when it comes down to making dietary choices, you're like, oh, I'm hungry, I fancy meat. 
it's in some part a statement about hypocrisy, but and it's in more some about part a sort of societal individual disjoint. Yeah, so there's for, there's definitely societal individual disjoint, and increasingly we're seeing that some people are kind of taking that societal point and actually incorporating it into their individualism, mm. right? So you know, more and more people are. Let me give an example. More and more people are reading something by Peter Singer mm-hmm. and choosing to give money to people in need rather than saying, hey, why isn't the government doing more foreign aid? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. More and more people are learning about the impacts of meat and saying, I'm choosing to be vegan or vegetarian for these ethical reasons. I'm choosing not to buy fast fashion. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so my question is, should more people be choosing to pursue careers and you know methods of generating their income that maybe don't at least minimize the compromises that they're making mm. or in the kind of spirit of something like effective altruism are thinking at least consciously thinking about the trade-offs that they're making right effective altruism one's a really interesting point we've talked about this before and we certainly talked about it in the facebook episode if you guys haven't listened to it definitely go check it out it complements this one really nicely because it's mm. all about like how much should you consider the ethics of the company that you go to work for in many ways it's a very similar question the eighty thousand hours theory proposed by the guys who design effective altruism is basically saying if you're talented you could justify going to work for the kind of institution like an investment bank or or a big city firm earn a really big salary on the basis that that's the fastest way to accumulate capital which you can then distribute to causes that you care about yeah yeah and really i guess it's to some extent it's that question of the third when we're talking about dan pink in the last episode it's really that question of how you determine purpose because you have some ability to do that yourself right Mm -hmm. and there's you know people are driven by different things it could be like familial in which case building up capital could be important to you because you're thinking about your family clip to the symptoms where you know homer's doing it for maggie rather than working at the bowl uh, the Mm -hmm. alley it's a very cute episode if you don't get it whatever watch simpsons so you can derive your own purpose there. But my point is just that you, if you are doing something, I'm reaching that point in my life. This is sad. Uh, (laughs) It's not sad, but I'm reaching that point in my life where like a lot of friends who made the choices that led to making a lot of money are now coming to that point in their life where they're like, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) Where did my twenties go? Yeah. Where did my twenties go? You know, suddenly it's like, I have money, but what do I even want to spend it on? We've talked before about the, or I don't know if we've talked about it on the show, but the golden handcuffs phenomenon, which is basically you, you, you go into a really high paying job because you want to accumulate social capital and actual financial capital, but you always say like, you know, I'm going to do it for a few years and then I'm going to go off and do something mm. really purposeful and meaningful. And the um, the golden handcuffs phenomenon is basically that even though you, you build up enough money that you could make that choice, your expenses have also <laughs> gone yeah, up you've in allowed your, your income. You've suddenly got a nice house with a big mortgage and actually the possibility of taking a big cut in pay to go work somewhere, you know, work for a charity, for example, suddenly becomes unfeasible because you yeah. can't, your life doesn't permit for it. Which is funny because it's like you said, it's entirely possible. Just you don't have buy the, You have savings, like just buy the smaller house, buy the less fancy house. But you know, your desires change. I'm sure if we one day, so, and part of the reason I enjoy making these podcasts is because it's it's a way of committing myself to trying to live by the morals <laughs> that I, I do care about. But you know, I'm sure that we'll do something stupid when we sell our company or something like that. Buy that amazing super yak. <laughs> Yacked. <laughs> it's a yacht, but the sea isn't, isn't silent. Um, <laughs> But sorry, to bring that back to the point. We were talking about the golden handcuffs and the 80,000 hours um, ideas, but generally it's about like people hitting that point in their career and and what do they do about it. So there was a short diatribe we were talking about like effective altruism and and like, okay, maybe sometimes doing the crappy thing, but doing it consciously. So like, oh, I'm working at Facebook, but I'm doing it for a little bit to build my career to then do the things I care about. But understanding the trade-offs you're making and being committed to making that change when it makes sense. Because too many people say like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer for a little bit and then I'm going to go and work in the less well-paid human rights lawyer stuff. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, you know, snap to 50, they're a partner at a major law firm (laughs) and they work on like financial stuff that they're not actually interested in Mm. and isn't that 
useful societally or whatever like similar counterpoint taking that back to what we were saying about like vegetarianism ethical consumption etc i think more and more of us can start to think about like okay actually how can i focus my career around doing something that i think does contribute value right when you're assessing your career options you shouldn't be looking at the salaries that they all offer you should also be thinking like is this work that matters is this work mm. that i like if i didn't go in and do it every day there would be you know a cause for concern mm. uh, and i think not enough people are applying that and they end up becoming uh, they end up either doing things that they are not excited about I, I, you know we had an intern and he wanted to work at Goldman Sachs and you know we've spoken <laughs> to him at length and we're like oh like well the work is going to be like this and etc etc and he, he's just under the societal pressure to do something high status that pays a lot and that's the kind of a, a culture that we're developing over time that I'm distraught to see this and, is what we're kind of rallying against because I think to take him again as an example our former intern you know really bright talented guy and you mentioned at the beginning of your essay that you know you go back a hundred years before these kind of meta service industries existed and those are the kind of people who'd be like you know trying to change the world they'd become great scientists they'd become you know great leaders and have these kind of aspirations that I think for one reason or another have kind of been been lost on some of the most talented kids in our generation you know yep. you look at so many of our peers that we were at university with yep. clearly bright enough to go on to do um, do great things and, and yep. far too many of them are just like following the kind of grad scheme recommendations of like okay McKinsey's in town or you know exactly, all, all, exactly. all these big city companies I mean consulting is a big one as well because it's, it's a holding pen like mm. so many people go into consulting it is the epitome of that like it pays well I'm learning stuff mm -hmm. so it's a great middle step and then they just end up stuck there mm. or something similar to it and uh, that's that's a real shame basically i'm it's all a plea to people to just kind of think more consciously about other paths this is the other thing okay working in technology doing a bunch of different things including this podcast you kind of realize uh, maybe this is a perspective totally focused on my own lived experience but i feel like there is this pressure and funneling into these large corporate careers that are safe pay well but all effectively meta industries there was no drive when we we're at uni like hey maybe you should learn about how to make a tech product considering mm. you know it's a well-paying career that is making actual things that everyone is using or you know, maybe you should learn about, oh, can you think of another example? <laughs> or other than tech? Um, yeah. yeah, science, you know. Yeah, or maybe you should become a scientist or, or maybe you should become pilot or something, so <laughs> doing something, right? None of these were drives that existed within the career path that we're following. There was some extent, it's extent towards the civil service, but, you know, that's large bureaucracy that maybe isn't as autonomous as I would like to be. But I, mm -hmm. I, I do think... I do think as well, like government can use the technology that exists now for a shakeup to do things that are more effective, mm -hmm. at, like basically to implement more experiments, do more new things. Like you see, like even with the UK government now, like you can start mm -hmm. to log into online services and stuff and do things more simply. And that's actually something that's so beneficial. Mm -hmm. Guys, I think that is kind of our time. We're getting close to the end. Yeah. To give my perspective and sum up, I said all along, I think I have this ideal of the world where, you know, the money you earn is commensurate with the meaning uh, or the value you provide to society. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the reason we we've kind of done this episode at all and to some extent the plea that we're making is that uh if you want to go into a really high paid career cool do so mindfully do so with the idea that you know you can use it to fulfill purpose in other areas understand 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 that, the trade-offs yeah, that you're making i think so many people kind of get stuck at that kind of secondary third level kind of motive where you know it's like i want money i want status and it's only when they reach a certain age they suddenly realize like wait why did i want that thing mm. and they maybe realize like oh maybe i wanted it for the wrong reasons or ah you know what it was actually or a vehicle to something else mm -hmm. that actually I could have better optimized. So, you know, some people say, oh, I need money. It's like, why? To provide for my family. And it's like, oh, actually, like, I don't know, just moving somewhere with a better <laughs> co with a better cost of living, I could have achieved that. How, how much do you actually need in order to just sort of provide in the most sort of needed senses? I think then the alternative that we're suggesting or, or what we're kind of encouraging people to think about is that, you know, work is one of the biggest portions of your life, yep. you know, the biggest allocations of your time that you have in your life. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, how how much more you know how how much more enjoyable is it to be able to spend that time doing something that you do find meaningful? It's not to say it's necessarily something that you're passionate about all the time. I think in some ways that's a mistake that people also make. Is you know you should pursue a career that you're passionate about. I think it's just you know pursue something that you're Pur- good purpose at. Purpose and see passion. Just, purpose yeah. and passion aren't synonymous, right? Yeah, not 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 necessarily. Uh, fantastic if they are, but it's it's about you know find mm. something that you're good at, find something that you can contribute to meaningfully, and yep. um and you'll get so much fulfillment out of that. I mean, it's uh, you know, speaking selfishly. It's 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 been really uh, really privileged of us to be able to build our own company, run it in the way that we enjoy, but also see every day the the value that we're providing to to the small businesses and the, and the customers that use our services. There's something really rewarding about that. And then Absolutely. as well as that, we you know we're learning so much along the way. We're, we're hopefully becoming better entrepreneurs. And <laughs> yeah, as as a heuristic, if you're working in a meta industry, so if you're working in some way where you're servicing people who do stuff rather than doing stuff assess whether what you're doing is is helpful valuable guys i think we'll cut it there because we are about to get kicked out of our podcast booth but thank you very much for listening to this kind of more discussion episode Mm. or set of episodes welcome any questions or recommendations and always feel free to reach out thanks guys thank you guys see you next time